All right, good evening. Tonight we're going to be in the book of Micah. It's a minor prophet. Uh, Well, this is a minor prophet's class. Obviously, it's a minor prophet. Um, I'm not really an Old Testament scholar. And Dad asked me a couple of weeks ago if I could teach this class. And I said, sure. I didn't know it was Micah. He was like, oh, by the way, it's Micah. So we're going to try to get through this class in one piece. Um, But Micah is considered one of the more difficult prophetic writings. And as I was looking through this, I I realized that that reputation is kind of undeserved. I mean, there's a section we'll look at tonight that's kind of hairy. You know, it's a little confusing at first, but it's really not that difficult. It has the same plot as almost every other prophetic writing in the Old Testament. We'll look at that in a little bit. But before we get into our study, let's take a look at what's going on around the world in Micah's day to help set the stage. Now, I'm not a historian by any means, and I know that there are some here who are really good at that. So if I get any of these facts wrong, blame the internet. This was not my original research. Micah was written in the 8th century BC, which was a pretty significant time for most of the developed countries around the world at that time. It was probably written around 13 years before the fall of Jerusalem and Israelite captivity. The date 722 BC will probably stand out in a lot of our minds. It was also probably written a few years before the famous Lamassu human bull hybrid statues were built. Um, You can probably picture it now. They're the ones with the giant beards, the bull statues that we usually associate with ancient Sumerian culture. Micah was also a contemporary of the ancient Chinese state of Jing. And if I saw the timeline correctly, it also corresponds with the spring and autumn period and the Zhu dynasty. Around this time, cities are also popping up on the Indian subcontinent, and Greece is colonizing areas near the Mediterranean and Black Seas. And again, if I've got my timeline right, Rome should be about 20 years old at this point, so it's still kind of a fledgling country. There's a possibility that when Micah was written or recorded, the Iliad and the Odyssey were written around that same time, um, or at least the stories were created. From what I could find, this was uh, around the time that Homer was born. In Egypt, they saw the rise of the 25th dynasty, which we might know of as the Nubian dynasty. And interestingly enough, they are connected with the story of Micah. So let's look at the plot. As I mentioned a second ago, Micah has a very similar plot to many other Old Testament books, namely Habakkuk, Obadiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos. I have Obadiah twice on this list for some reason. Zephaniah, Zechariah. Malachi, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. And there may be others, but those were just the books that I could find had an almost identical plot to Micah. So what is that plot? What is similar between all of these books? Well, we learn from each one of them that God is consistent. He's always going to come after people who hurt the innocent. We find that God highly values care for vulnerable groups. We find that God hates it, when people take advantage of them. In fact, in every one of those books that I just mentioned, the reason that God initiates judgment against every single one of those cities, well, Israel, most of the time, um, was because they were abusing the vulnerable and their populations. We learn that God always gives an out if the bad guys are willing to stop. We learn that God will keep his promise, no matter what happens, whether they repent or not, to preserve Abraham's genetic line, allowing Jesus to come onto the scene. So that's Micah, and just about every other prophetic writing after the death of Solomon, in a nutshell. 
Each of these prophetic books is set up very similarly, but the characters or perspectives are switched around. And we'll notice throughout every single one of those books that Israel has plot armor because they never fully disappear. And that's by design. We can remember that promise that God made to Abraham that he would preserve his line until all of the nations of the world are blessed. But Israel never learns their lesson, so the same story plays out almost ad nauseum. But if that doesn't prove that God is patient, I don't know what will. You'd think after the 13th sequel he'd give up on this project, but that never happens. Israel gets to repeat this cycle over and over and over and over again. Until Micah. Micah is the tipping point for Israel. After his prophecies are fulfilled, nothing's ever going to be the same for them again. Israel will no longer be stuck in the same cycle of repentance, rebuilding, prosperity, and then decline, warning, judgment, repentance, rebuilding, and so on. After Micah's prophecies. They're going to be slave or servant states. They're not going to exist as an independent nation um, for centuries after this. According to Micah 5 and verse 3. And even then, they're going to have their national identity almost completely erased in AD 70. So the natural rebirth of Jerusalem, the only time that Jerusalem would be restored to the glory it had under Saul, David, and Solomon, would not appear until the church. The church is a spiritual Jerusalem, according to Micah 4. The ultimate survival of Jerusalem would be through the city that God brings down, according to Revelation 21, um, when we uh, go to heaven. So while the state of Israel would never return to the former glory they had under Saul, David, or Solomon, the ultimate destiny of Abraham's genetic line would be far more important than they could ever imagine. So with that background, let's get into the text. Chapter 1 is where we find out that Micah is a vision of future events for Samaria and Jerusalem, according to Micah 1 and verse 1. Now this may have already been brought up, but anytime we see the word prophet, or most of the time we see the word prophet in the Old Testament, That's talking about someone who has insight into future events. A lot of times it's a messenger of God, but almost all of the time, I can't think of an exception off the top of my head, um, they have the ability to tell the future, what God allows them to see. So at that time, God gave some of his people the ability to accurately predict future events. But there were some stipulations. Some people tried to use prophecy as an easy way to make money, which we'll see actually in Micah. But the penalty for impersonating a prophet under the old law was death, especially if that prophet tried to get you to follow other gods, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. So Micah was a man from Moresheth who had visions of future events. The letter starts off by addressing the entire planet, even though this is specifically for a tiny divided country in the Middle East, verse 2. Because God is never going to do anything sketchy, Um, He invites the entire world to confirm the legitimacy of his judgment against Israel. He's also going to use Israel as a poster child of what not to do. It says, Listen, all you people, earth and everyone on it, listen. The Lord God will be a witness against you. He will come from his holy temple. See, the Lord is leaving his place to come down and walk on the mountains of the earth. Those mountains will melt under him like wax in a fire. The valleys will break apart and slide like water rushing down a hill. This will happen because of Jacob's sin, because of the sins of Israel. What caused Jacob to sin? It was Samaria. Where is the high place in Judah? It is in Jerusalem. That's verses 2 through 5. So God's about to show up with a kind of power that no one can stand up against. This message sent to Israel that they had no hope of hiding from their fate if they didn't change. Now the first issue identified in Micah, according to verse 5, interestingly enough, it's never really expanded on from what I could tell. 
is idolatry. The main problem that Israel had, which is going to be repeated three or four times in this book, is that they failed to take care of vulnerable groups and or they outright defrauded them to make themselves wealthier. That alone, in God's eyes, warranted extreme measures. In verses 8 through 16, we see Micah preemptively mourning the loss of specific cities. Now, this section seems tedious on the surface because it is. We don't live in Akko, Beth Ophrah, Shafir, Zanan, Beth Ezel, Merith, or any other hard-to-pronounce Israelite city, so we don't get the impact of this section. We don't feel its significance. But what's most important and what Micah's trying to get across is that he's specifically calling out individual cities. Samaria would be struck with an incurable wound, and from verses 10 through 15, each line relates to the meaning of the name of the town that's being referenced. Your Bible may even have footnotes explaining the wordplay that doesn't show up well in English. But the point of this section that seems very confusing and is kind of hard to get through is that everything's going to be turned upside down and inside out if they don't get it together. Micah invites all of Israel to join him in mourning the death of Israel because of their sin, Micah 1.16. This dramatic opening scene probably caught the attention of people who just heard, y'all are about to be in big trouble, you might as well start crying about it. Chapter 2 is an awful break because it interrupts the dramatic effect of Micah's opening statement, which perfectly segues into the reason he said all that stuff to begin with. Verses 1 and 2 say, Trouble will come to those who make plans to sin. They lay in their beds at night making their evil plans, and when morning comes, they do exactly what they planned because they have the power to do whatever they want. They want fields, so they take them. They want houses, so they take them. They cheat a man so they can take his house and his land. So that was a big part of the problem. As with most countries, it's not usually the rank and file who are responsible for the decline of society. Some people may go along with it, maybe even a lot of people will go along with it, but the wealthy and powerful usually drive the direction society takes. Think about the decline of our own country in recent years. Sometimes it seems like we're outnumbered by people who believe some of the craziest stuff imaginable. But that's not true. Most Americans don't buy into it at all. It's really the people who are in power who push that stuff, along with those who believe them. Israel's biggest problem was with a powerful elite who were cheating other people out of their things. Now, as we look through the book, it doesn't even seem like this is outright theft, but it's a misuse of power to intimidate or trick people into giving up their stuff for less than it's worth. We see that detailed in Micah 6, 8 through 12. God views this as being one and the same as outright theft, though. Bad business ethics and bad judicial ethics are enough for God to bring severe punishment. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 is a message to those wealthy elites. It reads, This is why the Lord says, Look, I'm planning trouble against this family. You will not be able to save yourselves. You'll stop being proud because bad times are coming. Then people will sing songs about you saying, We are ruined. The Lord took away our land, and he gave it to other people. He took my land from me and split it among my enemies. So we won't be able to measure the land and split it among the Lord's people. As an interesting aside from what I could find, every time we see the word Lord used in this section, or at least most of the times, it's the word Yahweh, the same one who created the earth and sky in Genesis 1 and 3. Yahweh is also known as Logos, according to John 1. And who is Logos? Jesus. So that's who we're talking about. That is the one who is talking in this entire section. Jesus is the one who is bringing this judgment against his people. Well, Logos, but you know what I mean. 
Micah doesn't get very far into his scathing prediction when he meets some resistance. Those people were so hooked on their lifestyles that they refused to listen to opposition. Micah 2 and verse 6 says, The people say, don't prophesy to us. Don't say that stuff about us. Nothing bad is going to happen. Does that language sound familiar in a modern context? Micah answers this by saying, But people of Jacob, I have to say these things. The Lord is losing his patience because of the bad things you've done. If you lived right, I could say nice words to you, but you attack my people like enemies. You steal the clothes off of the backs of people walking by. They think they're safe, but you treat them like prisoners of war. You have taken nice houses away from the women of my people. You have taken my wealth away from their small children forever. Get up and leave because this won't be your place of rest. You've ruined it. You've made it unclean so it'll be destroyed and its destruction will be terrible. Verses 6 through 10. What fundamental directive were they completely ignoring? The most important commands. Love God with all of your being and love your neighbor like yourself. Jesus claimed that everything the law and the prophets said came from those two commands. Everything about every one of the 613 commands under the old law came from or extrapolated from loving God with all of your being and loving your neighbor like yourself. By ripping off people who were vulnerable, maybe even those who weren't business savvy, they had caught the attention of Logos. And that's not a good place to be. He's called the master of armies for a reason in James 5 and verse 4 and Romans 9.29. We often think of big sins a certain way, uh, with a list that definitely has legitimacy. But we might not usually place unethical business or unfair deals as being on that list of big sins. It was enough, though, for well, ultimately Jesus, to say, you've made it unclean so it'll be destroyed and its destruction will be terrible. But that's not a very pleasant message and change is hard. Micah 2.11 says, these people don't want to listen to me. If a man comes telling lies, they accept him. They would accept a false prophet if he said, there will be good times in the future with plenty of wine and beer. Now we can apply this in a lot of ways. Uh, prosperity gospel probably comes to mind right away. That, that teaches that God doesn't really care what you do or how you live and now give me money. But it also applies to what we teach and believe. Sometimes we don't want to look at the tough parts of scripture. Teachings like divorce or church discipline. Peaceful living even in some contexts. Or eternal destination. But that doesn't make those things any less real. God follows this up with, you're right, I will bring you together, those of you who survive that is. Verses 12 and 13. Now, in chapter 3, Micah is still talking to these leaders, these prominent and powerful people in Israel. And he's still listing offenses under the same category. Now, the term social justice has been hijacked in recent years, but its legitimate definition is the focus here. There was, in practice at least, a two-tier justice system excuse me, in Israel at the time. If you were wealthy and you were willing to pay, you greased the right palms, you'd win in court. If you weren't wealthy or you didn't want to bribe the judge, you were out of luck. So by weaponizing the legal system, the elites of that time were able to take advantage of lower class citizens. So I know it's hard sometimes, especially, I mean, I'm guilty of this almost every time I go to the Old Testament. It's difficult to relate to what was going on back then. But if we compare what Micah was dealing with, with Israel, to what we're dealing with today, it's not so different. Some little details may have been changed, but... The word of God is going to be relevant no matter when we are or when we find ourselves. So even though their actions directly impacted the people they were defrauding, these leaders had the audacity to believe that their status as a Jew made them okay with God, Micah 3 and verse 4. 
So because they hurt the vulnerable, when Assyria came knocking at the door and they suddenly found the need to pray, God would ignore them. Verse 4. In verses 5 through 7, Micah tells the people what Logos had to say about the false prophets. It says, some false prophets are telling lies to the Lord's people. This is what the Lord says about them. These prophets are led by their stomachs. They promise peace for those who give them food, but they promise war to those who don't. And that's why it's like night for you, and you don't have visions. You can't see what will happen in the future, so it's like darkness to you. The sun has gone down on the prophets. They can't see what will happen in the future, so it's like darkness to them. The seers are ashamed. The fortune tellers are embarrassed. None of them will say anything because God won't speak to them. So if they thought they were in the clear because these scammers pretending to be prophets said that they were, God exposed their motives. Of course they'll tell you that because they stand to gain something. But it's an ominous sign when God turns off the future vision of actual prophets in town. The scammer prophets were basically a disgrace to the good name of the legitimate prophets, and that was something Micah felt those legitimate prophets could back him up on. So he says, But the Lord's Spirit has filled me with power, goodness, and strength, so I can tell Jacob about his crimes, and I can tell Israel about his sins. Verse, uh, chapter 3 and verse 8. Micah was clearly not a scammer prophet, because he expected nothing and stood to gain nothing. And he was clearly not one of the other prophets in town because their future vision had been turned off, but his was working just fine. Once again, in verses 9 through 12, the blame is placed on the leaders. They built Zion by murdering people. They built Jerusalem by cheating people, verse 10. The judges gave verdicts based on who had the most money, verse 11, and even the local priests and prophets refused to do God's work until they got paid first, verse 11. And that makes 11 and 12 more ominous. Those leaders expect the Lord to help them. They say, the Lord lives here with us, so nothing bad will happen to us. Leaders, because of you, Zion will be destroyed. It will become a plowed field. Jerusalem will become a pile of rocks. Temple Mount will be an empty hill overgrown with bushes. This would be true with the invasion of Assyria, and it would be true again when General Titus sacked Jerusalem in AD 70. Chapter 4 is where things get a little weird in the religious community. The last day terminology really throws people off. And to be fair, it is an ancient text translated from an extremely ambiguous language, Hebrew, into a highly specific and ever-changing ever language like English. So we can't fault people for misunderstanding this passage. But last day terminology almost always refers to the last major period on Earth's timeline, Christianity, or the Christian age. So you have the antediluvian period, the time before the flood, you have the patriarchal age, you have the mosaic law period, and then all of those spanned a few thousand years. But the Christian age is the last one we're going to get on this earth. So Micah 4 is a prophecy about the church. In the first four verses, we learn that God's family will extend beyond the tiny confines of a Middle Eastern country. Anyone on earth will be allowed in if they want. God's family, the church, would be global. It would start in Jerusalem, verse 2 but it would quickly spread to the whole world. Christian ethics would be used as the foundation for social advancement, verse 3. And God's people would never again be militant, verse 3. Now some who claim to be God's people have certainly been militant in, in world history. We think of the Crusades. Um, for especially Bowling Green, we might also think of the genocide committed against the Muslims uh, during the uh, Bosnian Civil War by the Orthodox, uh, the Serbs, I think. But the, or, excuse me, but the Jews would engage in conquest and national defense as part of their religious system, and God even approved that under certain circumstances. 
But that would never again be a part of God's family. God would never again command his people to violently drive out non-believers from a territory occupied by his people. Christians are called now to live quiet and peaceful lives, 1 Timothy 2, and to comply with governing authorities as long as they don't compel us to violate God's law, 1 Peter 3 and Romans 13. So while it's certainly not a sin to be a soldier by any stretch of the imagination, God no longer calls his followers as part of our belief system to defend our belief system with violence. But by verse 6, Micah appears to give hope before reading the sentencing. He says, the Lord, the Lord says, Jerusalem was hurt and crippled. She was thrown away. She was hurt and punished. But I will bring her back to me. The people of that crippled city will be the only ones left alive. They were forced to leave, but I will make them into a strong nation. The Lord will be their king, and he will rule from Mount Zion forever. So even when delivering harsh punishment, God isn't harsh. He gives hope first but then tells them in no uncertain terms that they were going to have to accept their punishment, verses 9 and 10. But this is actually a hope sandwich if you look at verses 11 through 13. God tells them that the nations who attacked them were going to be completely destroyed after they'd carried out the punishment God told them to. Look at verse 13. People of Jerusalem, get up and crush them. I will make you very strong. It will be as if you have horns of iron and hooves of bronze. You will beat many people into small pieces. You will give their wealth to the Lord. You will give their treasure to the Lord of all the earth. Interestingly enough, Assyria, the nation that attacked Israel, would suddenly implode about 150 years later with the death of their last king. Aspects of their culture would continue to, to exist afterwards, but their status as a country would be destroyed by Babylon with the fall of Nineveh. Chapter 5 gives even more context to the beginning of chapter 4. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, are the smallest town in Judah. Your family is almost too small to count. But the ruler of Israel will come from you to rule for me. His beginnings are from ancient times, from long, long ago. The Lord will let his people be defeated until the woman gives birth to her child, the promised king. Now this was a dual fulfillment prophecy. With fulfillment in the short term, in chapter 5, verses 4 through 15, and fulfillment in the long term with the arrival of Jesus and what he did for us. Jesus came from the smallest town in Judah, something I've always found fascinating. God almost never operated through the large and impressive, even though that's literally what God is. He gives his reason for that most explicitly in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, and 9, which says, My grace is enough for you because my power is most effectively displayed through weakness. God is so powerful that he influences the direction of reality through those who are weak and unimpressive. Israel was a small unimpressive, constantly irritating nation for most of its history, but Jesus came to earth through their lineage, not from the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians or any other prominent group. He came through Israel. Jesus didn't choose the best and brightest of society to turn the world upside down. He chose mostly uneducated, somewhat unintelligent, unimpressive from our perspective, blue-collar, sometimes endlessly frustrating, average people. Micah 6 is probably what we're most familiar with when we think of this book. It starts off in the tone of a court case. Present your arguments to the mountains. Let the hills hear your story. The Lord has a complaint against his people. Mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. Foundations of the earth, hear the Lord. He will prove that Israel is guilty. The Lord questions why the people of Israel have abandoned him the way they have. He says, tell me what I did. Did I do something wrong to you? Did I make life too hard for you? I'll tell you what I did. 
I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam to you. I brought you from Egypt and I freed you from slavery. Verses 1 through 4. Israel had no good reason to abandon God. He'd always taken care of them as long as they were good to each other and didn't worship fake gods. He gave them way more power than a people of their size should have had. Their military capabilities rivaled those of far more intimidating, organized, and well-trained nations when they were faithful. And as we look throughout the Old Testament, their enemies were even known to employ giants at times. But to my knowledge, Israel never did. God made sure that they were protected and comfortable when they stuck with him. I think that might have had a tendency to go to their heads, though, because they seemed to be in a constant cycle of dysfunction, and this most clearly demonstrated in the book of Judges. They were going through all of the motions of good Judaism, verses 6 and 7, but that wasn't what God wanted. If they abused the vulnerable, their year-old calves, their rams, and their rivers of oil meant absolutely nothing to God, Micah 6, 6 and 7. Verse 8 gives the solution. Human, the Lord has told what goodness is. This is what he wants from you. Be fair to other people, love kindness and loyalty, and humbly obey your God. But Israel wasn't doing that at all. Look at verses 11 and following. Some people carry special weights that they use to cheat people when they weigh their goods. Should I pardon them? The rich in that city are still cruel. The people there still tell lies. Yes, they tell their lies. So I have begun to punish you. I will destroy you because of your sins. You will eat, but you will never become full. You will still be hungry and empty. You will try to bring people to safety, but people with swords will kill those you rescued. You might plant your seeds, but you won't gather food. You will try to squeeze oil from your olives, but you'll get nothing. You'll crush your grapes, but you won't get enough juice to have wine to drink. This is because you obey the laws of Omri. You do the evil things Ahab's family does. You follow their teachings, so I will let you be destroyed. People will whistle in amazement when they see your destroyed city, then you will bear the shame the other nations bring to you. Most of the offenses at the beginning of this list don't seem to fit the punishment, right? But the heart of every offense they've committed is a violation of the second most important command, love your neighbor. We'll look into the more serious offenses in chapter 7, but God takes this stuff very seriously. There are many wonderful Christian business owners. In fact, I would probably assume that the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of Christians who own businesses are good, ethical, honest people. But some in here might even know a few who don't have the integrity they should have. Maybe they don't act like Christians. Maybe they take advantage of others. Maybe they adopt unethical practices to maximize profit. That makes God furious. In Micah and about a dozen other books, those kinds of things led to immense death and suffering at God's hands. I mean, look at the graphic language used in the text we just read. Obviously, there was more to this situation than just being unethical in business and in law. But it should capture our attention when those offenses are at the very top of the list in so many prophetic writings. God takes the well-being of the vulnerable very, very seriously. The book of James is just about excuse me, is almost all about navigating differences in wealth the way God wants us to. James 1.27 says, Pure undefiled religion from God's point of view is this. Take care of orphans and widows who need help and keep yourself free from the world's evil influence. Doesn't that sound like I desire mercy and not sacrifice? Obviously, God expects us to worship him the way he prescribed, but Matthew 15 makes it pretty clear that God demands we place care for others in at least the second highest position. Chapter 7 is the last one in Micah. Uh, the first four verses act as a summary of the charges. This is where God reads the charges that he has against the people. Charge number one, 
All of the faithful people are gone. No good people are left. Verse 2. Charge number two. Everyone is planning to kill someone, even people in their own family. That's going to be important in a minute. Verse 2. Charge number three. People have become highly skilled in doing bad things. The text even says people are good at doing bad things with both hands. Verse 3. Charge number four. The officials ask for bribes. Verse 3. Charge number five. The judges take money to change their decisions in court. Verse 3. Charge number six. Leaders do whatever they want to do. Verse 3. And even the best of them is as crooked as a tangled thorn bush. Verse 4. And then verses 5 and 6 act as a summary of the consequences. So God just read them the charges, and here's a summary of the consequences. They were going to be punished. They were going to be confused. They would no longer be able to trust neighbors, friends, and even spouses. Their enemies would be their own biological families. Verse 6 says, a son will not honor his father. A daughter will turn against her mother. A daughter-in-law will turn against her mother-in-law. Maybe these verses are familiar enough to us that their full impact doesn't really sink in. This is saying that their social structures were going to be so badly damaged by God's punishment that the last source of comfort in this world, even when everything else falls apart, family would fall apart. Things were going to get so bad that family members would be willing to betray each other, presumably in the name of survival. This describes the most abysmal conditions a human could conceivably survive. But even then, survival would mean doing things that would serve as nightmare fuel for the rest of their lives. But the rest of chapter 7 is all about God. Uh, it's all about God, excuse me. Israel at this point just needed to focus on the future and trust God to preserve their lineage. A lot of them were going to be killed, but the Israelites would continue to exist ultimately. Verses 7 and 8, so I will look to the Lord for help. I will wait for God to save me. My God will hear me. I have fallen, but enemy, don't laugh at me. I will get up again. I sit in darkness now, but the Lord will be a light for me. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you're attacked by all kinds of trials. You know that a tested faith produces endurance. Micah adds an element of hope, though. Israel's fall would be bearable and not terribly long. Micah anticipated either recovery or vindication in a short enough period of time that he tells his enemies not to even celebrate. And this is an allusion to previous chapters where God promises to eradicate the Assyrians. Verses 9 and 10 continue the thoughts of the previous two verses. I sinned against the Lord, so he was angry with me. But he will argue my case in court. He will do what is right for me. Then he will bring me out into the light, and I will see that he is right. My enemy said to me, Where is the Lord your God? But my enemy will see this, and she will be ashamed. At that time, I will laugh at her. People will walk over her like mud in the streets. Now, the sudden switch to feminine pronouns in verse 10 suggests that Micah is referring to a city or cities, from what I could find. So this is, I think, what, the third allusion to Assyria's destruction in Micah? His audience is going to be completely dejected at this point, and most will probably ignore him, but I doubt his prophecies ever left their minds. There would likely be an undercurrent of dread among the people as they waited for the hammer to fall. So Micah ends his prophecies with more hope. God was going to take care of them. God was going to avenge them. Verses 11 and 12 promise that they would be able to rebuild at some point, which is detailed in another book. They would return from being spread over the known world. And interestingly, I think at the beginning I mentioned that Egypt was going to be involved in this assault as well. Egypt is mentioned here in verses 11 and 12. 
And the Nubian dynasty would eventually become a puppet state for the Assyrian Empire before their fall. So even though the Israelites' land had been completely destroyed, they were going to have a chance to rebuild. And in that section, Micah warns them not to mess things up when they come back. In verses 15 and 17, God promises to thoroughly humiliate and terrify their enemies in the future. While it's a small comfort, it would definitely be a little bit easier to deal with whatever happens to you at your enemy's hands if you know that they're on borrowed time. They definitely aren't going to get the last laugh. Finally, verses 18 and 20 are Micah's closing thoughts, and they stand on their own, so I'll just read them. There is no God like you. You take away people's guilt. God will forgive his people who survive this. He will not stay angry with them forever because he enjoys being kind. He will come back and comfort us again. He will throw all our sins into the deep sea. God, please be true to Jacob. Be kind and loyal to Abraham as you promised our ancestors long ago. That's all I've got for uh, Micah. So are there any questions or comments or objections or input or corrections? If not, I guess we'll call ourselves dismissed. Really? I did not make that connection. High places, yeah. That's awesome. So I wonder who dropped the ball, because it would be, what, 13 years before they were captured and sent into to captivity? Is that right? 722 B.C. would have been about 13 years later? Okay. It's amazing how quickly bad leadership can take an entire nation in a terrible direction. That's awesome. Any other questions or comments? Thank you all for your attention tonight.